0: Did you notice how John said we don't care about the perps? Did you hear him say that? We we need to hear that in the church. Not so we feel superior to him. In the church today, there's an awful lot of terrible care for people who have been abused and are being abused because of our sense that we need to give the gospel to the predators. Remember yesterday I was telling you how, if I just love him, you know, and meanwhile the victims and their mother are sitting there waiting for me to get it. And I'm pouring time and love and listening to a predator. And that is so typical of us in pastoral ministry and elders. This is not just something that jumps out of nowhere. Do you understand this? And so if you think that all of a sudden you're just going to share the gospel with them and listen to them and be the daddy they never had, you need to face the fact that when they were a child, often they were doing this. And then when they were a young adolescent, then they were an adolescent, then their first marriage, they were doing this. Historically, if somebody is a predator against children, historically, in Christendom, the Western world, what happens to them? They're just executed. They're just killed. Now, are they killed because there's no hope for them spiritually? No. Execution doesn't mean there isn't hope for them. And if you go back into colonial times, I've told you you'll find these execution sermons The criminal is under the sentence of death. They confess their sins to a pastor of their choice. That pastor works with their soul. And often as they go to the execution, they will confess their sins publicly. And then they've asked the pastor to give a sermon to everybody gathered there so that they will be an example of, and they'll say things like, I started lying to my father when I was a young boy. I neglected secret prayer. I would not listen to any rebuke. And you just read these execution sermons and they're fascinating. Don't ever think that because we're Christians, that means that, that, that we have an equivalency between the, between the victims and the predator. We have an obligation to both the predator and the victims. We are to love the predator with the victims, but by the time a predator is a predator against his own daughter, you're talking about a man who has taken everything that is sacred in this world and trampled on it. And it's not against the gospel for me to say this. Do you understand this? I am not saying that we don't believe in the gospel for the most wicked Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. But you cannot connive at the long, lifelong wickedness of these people and act like it's just going to go away if you love them and tell them you believe in the gospel. It just isn't going to happen. There are many people that the most gospel thing for them will be for them to spend the rest of their lives in a prison cell. And why? Well, because then they will not be able to give in to their temptation again. Yes, we love predators. Yes, we'll sit with them and love them. We'll touch them. We'll pray with them. We'll cry with them. And we'll take them to the police. Okay, um, why are we having women this year? You know, sometimes you do things by fiat. You know, you just say we're going to do it, right? And there was a lot of pushback this year to us having women here. Because, you know, as a church, we believe in male chap. One of my favorite times in an elders' meeting was a few years ago when we were talking about an officer whose wife had, you know, she I mean, really sort of wacko. And so we were trying to figure out how to deal with it, and, and somebody said, well, the problem is in that home she leads that home. And then it was real quiet in the elders' meeting. I don't know. It was real quiet in the elders' meeting, and then Jay Lee, he said, well, come on, man. He laughed. He said, don't all of our wives lead our homes? But not my wife, she's submissive. (laughs) We had an elders meeting recently where Wayne Huck, who is not known for his sense of humor and anything other than puns, uh, Wayne Huck was sitting there talking to everybody. There were, what, 20 people in the room, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, apropos to nothing, complete non-sequitur, in the middle of his talk, Wayne says, by the way, where is Mary Lee? And it took us about that long to start laughing because he's just making a joke about, you know, we always have elders meetings with Mary Lee there, but she's never been there. But we all sort of have this idea what Cheryl Bailey will think about what we're discussing in our elders meeting. (laughs) David, I mean, that's basically true. And not just your wife and my wife, but Joyce Huck. So this is my lead-in to say... God gave Eve to Adam. She was given to him to be a helpmate. Listen, women are given to us to rebuke us, to correct us, to chasten us, to admonish us, to exhort us, to pray for us. Women are not to be patronized. And I look around this room, I know a lot of you, and let me tell you something uh, my father went to Wheaton College back in the heydays when Graham and all those guys were there, and he was out speaking one time, and a woman came up to him, and she had dated Billy Graham, and she said to Dad, um, you know, when I think of what my life would have been like if, if, if I had been Billy Graham's wife, and my dad looked at her and he said, when I think about what Billy Graham's life would have been like if he had had you as his wife. Now, I am the product of my mother's discipline more than my father's discipline. My mother was a tough woman, and my mother never stopped telling me I wasn't nothing from the time I could remember until the time she died. Now, I don't know if she was that hard on David. (laughs) What? Yeah, it's because you behave, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. People in this church know about Rita Cuffy, and I want to tell you a little bit about Rita Cuffy. She was a woman that came up to me when I first came to Bloomington. She asked if I could uh, meet with her that week. And it was like, what's in it for me? Now, I know no pastor ever thinks thoughts like that, right? You don't think thoughts like that, but I do. And so I met with her that week, and it was the beginning of a love relationship like few we've had in our whole family history. That woman became a mother in Israel to our church, to me, to Mary Lee, to our children. She was an unbelievable gift. She had gone to the best public school in the country called Boston Latin. Any of you heard of Boston Latin? Busts of the ancient Greek philosophers in the hallways. And it's a public school in Boston. Then she went to Radcliffe and then she got a fellowship to study astronomy at Harvard. And she met an astronomer there and married him and gave up her fellowship and moved here. And he was a professor of astronomy here. So this was a Renaissance woman. There was nothing Rita didn't know. She knew her Bible so well, she didn't just know which book it was in, but which chapter. And she also knew where exactly on the page it was. So she would just tell you, I think that's on the right side at the top of the right margin. Rita would ask me every week, what can I pray for you about? And I'd say, well, uh, would you pray that I'll be faithful in daily devotions? That's been a battle my whole life. And so after a couple of times of me asking her to pray for that, she'd come in and she would have somewhere between 7 and 15 pages of, of paper that she had written out scripture passages on. And she would hand it to me and she would say, you just go ahead and you read that. When you're done reading that, then we can talk. This is wonderful. That's how she was getting me to have devotions that day. She wouldn't talk to me until I got done having my devotions. If she had a correction to make to me, she would make it in a, in a beautiful way. You know, I was wondering, do you think, da 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 and then I'd realize I, I said that in a sermon. And I'd think, yeah, okay, Rita, tell me. And then she'd tell me. Um It is impossible to understand this church today without understanding Rita Cuffey. It's impossible. Rita Cuffey was the lifeblood of this church. Rita Cuffey lives on in me now. I want to know what Rita thinks of what I'm saying, right? You know what I'm saying? This is typical of the church across history. These women are called mothers in Israel. And they are strong women. When I preach Sunday morning, right here are Frank and Ann Mead, and then there's Rachel, and there's Margaret, and there's Linda. And those of you that go to church here know where they sit right here. And it is impossible for me to describe to you how important they are for me having the strength to preach. Because they just sit there exhorting me, without saying a word, Preach it. I know they expect me to be faithful. And so when it comes to the issue of sex abuse, you can't do anything in your church without your wife. You just can't. Your wife is going to tell you what you need to know. She's going to talk to you about, you know, the young girl who has such and such a problem. She's going to talk to you about the marriages. So what is the biblical basis for this? Well, in the Old Testament, it's mother in Israel. Okay? Mother in Israel, we make no apologies for this. Then look with me at Acts 16, 13 to 15. Acts 16, 13 to 15. You know the feminists are always talking about women of the Bible, right? Well, here's a woman of the Bible. Look at this. It says, from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, Rome, Roman colony. We were staying in the city for some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer and we sat down, and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul and when she and her what? Whose household? It's Lydia's household. The Lord opened her heart to respond to things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now what? You know, because we believe in male headship, we're going to try to explain that away? She was the head of her house. When she believed, her household followed her as the head of her house into faith. We don't... Because we believe male headship doesn't mean that that we think that we have to have the wisdom. It's just stupid. Don't be so insecure that your wife can't correct you. And then we look at Romans 16, 3 to 5, and we read what there? We read, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks. Notice, plural, Prisca and Aquila. To whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. So why did he mention Prisca? Apparently the apostle Paul is a nascent feminist. And then we look at Acts 18, beginning with verse 2, and we see this of these things, he, Paul, left Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife, what? Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. Now skip down to verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is the way God works. He works through women. He instructs an eloquent, uh, godly, gifted Apollos. And it says they instructed him. It's not a singular. It's not just referring to him coming into her home. But she instructed him. So when it comes to child sexual abuse, uh, it's indispensable. Now, one thing before Mary gets up, and she's going to say this right away when she gets up here, she's going to say to you that your wife may not have the gifts to do this. And this is true. There are some women that just don't have the gifts. And that's not a failure of your wife, and it's not a failure of you. There are women married to elders, pastors. Titus, two women are not always pastors and elders' wives. Be natural about this stuff. Use the women that have the gifts. Don't force your wife into a mold But Mary Lee has been a godsend to us, and there are other women here who have, but Mary Lee's going to talk to us now, okay?
1: Find my friends here. (laughs) Hi, you guys. Okay, I am primarily talking to the women here, um, but it is important uh, what I'm going to be talking about, and therefore um i expect the men to go home and try to relate some of the things that i've been telling you um it occurs to me that at the end of this i think i'll just give you my um email address and then um you can see, these tapes are, these things are not actually being taped um oh i guess we don't know for sure that they're not okay whatever these may or may not be taped they may or not be available I would like to make my uh, manuscript available to your wives. So I will give you my email address at the end, and you can just pop me an email, and I will send you my manuscript. Um, hopefully that there are going to be some helpful things. We are uh, called as wives and women of the church to be helpful um, to our husbands. It is our calling. Uh, as Tim said, Eve was created to be Adam's helpmate, and we need to be helpful to our husbands. What that exactly means is going to be different for each person. Each of you have different personalities. Your churches are different styles, different denominations, different churches even have personalities. But you're not going to be helpful if your motto is things like, well— I didn't think it was my place to say anything, or it's my husband's job, not mine, or uh, I'm not really qualified to speak on that, or I'm pretty young and I haven't had that experience. Um, of course, people may actually say that to you, but you need to not listen if anybody's going to try to demean you for being a woman or for being young. But you are your husband's helpmate, and if you think that only means that you are going to keep the home up and take care of your children, you're wrong. I'll do a quick reading of the Titus 2 uh, passage that's hopefully very familiar to everybody here. Uh, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. And that's always been the theme um, passage of our women's ministries here. And that whole passage is very pertinent to this topic. We need to be teaching the the younger women, and we need to be helping our husbands. In our church, um, some of how this looks is that Annie Carell uh, frequently counsels with Max. Looking for them. There they are. Uh, they, they live right across the field here. Uh, they often do a lot of this counseling in the comfort of their own home. Zebra does um, premarital counseling with Stephen. Tim and I often have couple, gone to work with counseling couples together. And some of you might be thinking, yikes, you know, our kids are little. How in the world would we manage to do that? But there are actually ways to work around it. So either if your children are a little older, you can leave them at home you know, with an older child taking care of them and go to the home of another couple with young children after their children are in bed or while their children are napping. You really don't want to obviously be having counseling sessions with children running around. But, you know, if your children are a little bit older, if you've trained them well, they can play quietly in another room. Tim and I have occasionally met with couples during Sunday school hour, which we don't really like to do, but it's pretty convenient. There's the nursery, there's Sunday school, everybody's being taken care of. We can do counseling during the Sunday school hour. Another thing, occasionally, we've had a, maybe a homeschool teenage girl come in and watch somebody's kids in the nursery during the week so that we can counsel them without the children needing to be there. So the whole point is you, just, you need to be creative. There are ways to get around the dilemma. But God has given uh, men and women different perspectives, and it is helpful to our husbands uh, when we can give them the feminine insights uh, that we have so, right now, I obviously have a lot of freedom. We don't have any children in the home. On occasion, I have gotten calls from someone else on the staff saying, I'm going to be counseling this so-and-so this afternoon. I need another woman, you know, I need a woman to be there with me. Can you come in? And I'm always happy to do that. Uh, one of the things that does need to be said here, and I think Tim has already mentioned it, but men never, never, uh, counsel with women alone. And unfortunately, many adulterous relationships have started in pastor's offices because a pastor has been counseling a woman alone. And as uh, Tim was reading this last night, he adds, men, of course she loves you. You listen to her. Don't let it go to your head. Okay. (laughs) So uh, that's just a basic true-ism. Men Do not counsel women alone. And it is true, though, that women who have been abused as children feel safer and more comfortable if there is a woman there, too. So that's just another benefit to you being able to be with your husband. It's going to make the other woman feel more comfortable. Talking about past molestation is a very difficult thing to do. One of the, again, a reality is... They do, women who've been molested do need to be pastored by the pastors who are men. Okay. So we can't set that aside. And I think that's going to be mentioned a little bit more later. We had a situation a few years ago with a woman who had terrible abuse in her background, became aware of it. They asked one of the men on staff to counsel her. He was using workbook that comes with the wounded heart uh, material. And so I just asked her a few weeks into it how it was going. She says, Oh, I hate it really, you know, she goes, well, it's embarrassing, it's terrible, you know, to be trying to explain to this man, and even, you know, even as I've written in the workbook, and then he has to read it, I she goes, I do not like it at all, so I thought, well, yeah, That is kind of dumb. Why don't we ask a woman to go through this material with her? And since I knew a woman that had been through that material earlier, I suggested the staff that this woman could be used in that way. They asked her, and what developed was a beautiful friendship between these two women as they worked through the abuse of one of them. So there are times when it's helpful for women to be present... There are times when it's um, better for the woman to do the counseling. Uh, We have on occasion recommended a female Christian counselor in town uh, when we think that there's going to be more long-term help needed than we are able to give. So again, just be creative, be flexible. Don't be all rigid about, you know, well, this is the person that does the counseling or whatever. Just be flexible. So again, so as women, we need to be approachable. Okay, so we want to create a sense that people can come to us. you have to to be approachable. you have to be honest about your own uh, lives and your own sins and failures. Uh, nobody wants to come talk about their own sin with a woman who just always says everything together, you know, that's not an approachable personality. Uh, We need to be good listeners, we need to develop the ability to uh, be sympathetic, to listen to the details of the pain of other people. If you're aloof and judgmental, you are not somebody that anybody wants to go to for help. Scripture tells us to mourn with those who mourn. Another way that women can be helpful to their husbands. And again, to mention this a little bit a while ago, though, we have our ears to the ground. You know, we're just lots of interactions, lots of conversations during the week and in Bible studies where we're going to be hearing things that our husbands aren't going to have heard. And so we do need to go home and say, uh, you know, this is what so and so said in Bible study today. And it really sounded a little weird. Um, do you know anything about what's going on in their marriage or in their home? If there's a child in Sunday school uh, or in the nursery that is just like so uh, acting out so regularly, the pastors actually need to know about that. You know, it probably says something that there's something a little off going on in that home. So don't ever hesitate to talk to your husbands about what you have seen and heard. It's not gossip uh, when we do that, even to go to another elder's wife or another staff wife and just sort of say, uh, have you been noticing this? It's not gossip. That's what, again, is part of our responsibility as leaders in the church uh, and as helpmates to our husbands. And this is, of course, a good time to insert the necessity of prayer We need to be discerning, we need to be asking the Holy Spirit every time we have an opportunity to talk to a woman about her past. In James, we're told if anyone lacks wisdom, we're to ask for it from God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to us. And I can't think of a situation involving abuse that we don't lack wisdom, and it is imperative that we approach each situation in humility and looking to God for help. You know, I've certainly had that experience where you are talking. With someone, and it's just kind of on a roll. It's just kind of going, moving along, and it feels like you, you know, were helpful, and they act like you were helpful. And afterwards, I cannot even begin to put together what I said. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know. So that's where you just think, okay, that was the Holy Spirit, because it certainly wasn't me. Harry gave a lot of statistics uh, earlier. You, you may think to yourself, well i not really sure I know anybody that was abused as a child. And I just want to say, look around the room. Because with the statistics that we have, look around your church because the people are there. It is hard to recognize. They were talking a lot about. It's hard to recognize the abuser, the you know the perpetrator, but it's very hard to recognize women who have been abused. Also, it is a big secret. Dan Allender, the author of the Wounded Heart, was asked once if he had been abused as a child. I mean, here he was working in the area, and that topic um, had already been involved in it for years. So someone said, "Is it, are you interested in this because you were abused as a child?" And he said, "Oh no, no." Uh-uh. So they reworded the question, were you ever in a situation where you felt sexually uncomfortable, awkward, or debased as a child? And he went, yeah. I mean, he said instantly, there were like three things in his mind where that was true of him as a child. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, the statistics are so hard to pinpoint, not only because we don't, you know, a lot of situations are not being reported, but because they don't get reported because people don't even recognize them as abuse. That's just true over and over again. So again, taken uh, from this, the wounded heart, it says, uh, sexual abuse is any contact or interaction, including visual, verbal, or psychological between a child and an adult, where the child is being used for the sexual stimulation of the perpetrator. So we kind of get stuck in our minds thinking in terms of just physical, um, some you know, physical interaction. But there are a myriad of um, situations that don't actually involve physical um, abuse. So you know, when a man is asking teenage girls to take certain poses in a swimming pool so he can take pictures of them, or if a teenage boy drops his pants in front of a 12-year-old girl and tells her to perform an indecent act on him, or if a grandfather tells his 16-year-old daughter that he wishes he could have sex with her, or if a brother-in-law sneaks into a bedroom of a teenage girl to take pictures of her under the covers, these are all sexual abuse. But the people that this happened to would probably say, well... No, it was just something weird that happened. But all inappropriate sexual contact is damaging and soul disturbing. And this would be a good time to mention that comparisons are odious. And it is completely pointless, harmful, and counterproductive to ever compare one woman's situation to another. Because it's easy to think, it's like, whoa, you think that's bad. You should hear what happened to her. Uh, You know, one friend was nearly raped by her older brother when she was 12, but she managed to get away. Another friend was raped by her father for years, so which is worse? And I can tell you, because I know both of these women very well, that life is never the same. You know, if a 12-year-old girl is having to fight off her brother, she's not the same. Uh, for life. So again, all inappropriate sexual contact is da- damaging and soul disturbing. And again, many women will deny that what happened to them was abuse. They, they don't know. They didn't, you know, they say, oh, my grandpa was just being weird. Uh, I knew it felt inappropriate and it left me feeling dirty and ashamed, but I didn't think it was abuse. I, did, I didn't know it wasn't normal. Uh, I I knew I couldn't stand to hug my uncle and have him kiss me like that, but no one else said anything, so I thought it must be okay. Or I thought my brother and I were just messing around. Or I hated it when my stepfather tickled me and touched me like that, but he acted like it was a game. So you can see how these types of situations would be very confusing to a child, and they're not going to get reported as um, sexual abuse. It's also very not uncommon for women to actually defend their molesters, saying things like, well, he was just drunk when that happened, or he was depressed, or I know he was just going through a hard time. He said he was sorry. They can't recognize that it is abuse often because if it was a sibling. You know, they're not going to understand it as abuse. We had a young woman here as a graduate student uh, at IU who came to us for counseling. She exhibited all the classic signs of having been abused, and she couldn't meet Tim's eyes. She was nervous. She was n- never interested in dating. So we asked her if she'd been abused, and she said no. So, but, you know, we, so we talked about all these different areas of her life, and um, we didn't really seem to be getting anywhere with her. So we finally encouraged her to go talk to a Christian counselor here in town few weeks later, so how's it going? And she says, well, we're taking a break. The uh, counselor is so convinced that I, you know, had some sort of molestation in my past, and since I can't think of anything, she just said, you know, right now it's not even worth us continuing to spend time together. So, we're, you know, well, so at some point Tim and I were talking to her again, and again, just kind of asked her to just rack her memory, please. You know, there's got to be something there. And um, she finally says, well... There was this one time, finally, and I really think that she probably had that one time in her mind every time she was questioned, but it did not rise to the level of something that she felt like was abusive. It was her, you know, as a brother, and she loved her brother. You know, it just, there's just always a lot of um, vague and gray areas when we're talking about abuse, but let me tell you, that one time changed her life, okay? That, you know, was the reason. She was not able to make contact with Tim, and and she never wanted to date because his brother had touched her inappropriately. So, you know, they've talked over and over here already about percentages of these situations that are done by family members or people known to the family, you know. So, again, neighbors, babysitters, uncles, cousins, grandfathers, you know, That's who you need to be thinking about and being aware of, not the protecting your children from, you know, Mr. Stranger danger. So yeah, I can give you examples of, you know, if somebody, everyone, you know, (laughs) got so many friends that, you know, the stepfather, the teacher, the sister, the grandfather, I can give you examples of every one of these women. But as women come to you for help about other areas of their life, um, it is very likely that there is a connection to sexual abuse in their past and they are not making any connections, and you might need to help them connect the dots. But to be this, to do, you know, for you to help them connect the dots, you need to be aware of the symptoms of abuse and be willing to ask a lot of questions, because most people can't connect the dots for themselves, and they don't realize that what they want to talk to you about, which is, you know, their marital problems, addiction, eating disorder, depression, thoughts of suicide, use of pornography, masturbation, sexual dysfunction, are usually directly connected to having been molested in their past. And that's where we need to start asking the right questions and directing them back, um, connecting the dots for them. I once had a woman um, tell me that her husband was always displeased with her appearance because she often wore ratty T-shirts, um, you know, stained and holes. In them. And he had asked her uh, to talk to me, which she was doing. And I'm sorry to say that I completely missed the boat, took the situation at face value, and talked to her about her clothing. And, you know, talked to her about how she could weed out the the shirts in her closet and throw away the old ones and, and ask her husband what he really liked and blah, 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 you know. So uh, I don't even recall most of what I said, and it was not the Holy Spirit. But I do know that several months later, she finally got up the nerve to talk to one of the pastors and talked about the terrible abuse that she had grown up with. So at that point, I'm finally connecting the dots and had to apologize to her for my failure and not asking questions and probing deeper and, you know, not realizing that there were probably serious, deeper issues that, that caused her to want to look like a slob all the time. And then to add insult to injury, she was actually living in an abusive situation at the time, but because she had been raised to keep secrets that was how she lived her life. So she was continuing to keep the secret of the situation she was really in right then in her marriage. So again, I mean, just you can kind of see how complicated all these situations can be. So this woman exhibited a pretty classic response to having been molested. Uh, Most women, many women will completely just let themselves go. They, They never want to wear a dress. They never want to look feminine. They never want to be considered pretty. They often gain weight. They don't want to wear makeup. Anything that could attract attention anyway, so they feel like, you know, well, that's what got them in trouble in the first place. They had gotten unwanted attention for whatever reason, and now they want to make sure they get new attention, and so I think that's kind of a stereotype that we're a little more familiar with, but in the uh, Wounded Heart, Dan Allender, interestingly, doesn't even mention that one, but he does go into some detail describing what he uh, terms the good girl the tough girl and the party girl, as different responses to having um, been molested. And uh, he says, it is easy to stereotype somewhat accurately the good girl as the typical downtrodden housewife or the perfect pastor's wife, the tough girl as the typical liberated woman, driven executive or ministry staff director, and the party girl as the bar-hopping promiscuous gadfly. Nevertheless, he says, at the risk of stereotyping, the three styles of relating can be briefly summarized. The good girl is committed to pleasure and relief through faithful attendance to relationship. The tough girl to the exercise of power and, through control and intimidation. And the party girl to enmeshment and control through seductive lust or guilt. And again, just um, reading these books and things on the internet It can be very helpful to us to understand when you're looking at someone who seems very together, you know, and she's risen to the top of her company, and she's just all power and control. That would actually just be a classic um, example of someone who has issues from their past. So we need to be able to recognize these types. I know one woman um, whose husband called us because his wife uh, was getting deeper and deeper into depression. And when we got together with them and began to probe and ask questions, it came out that she had been raped by her father when she was five. And um, to her memory, there wasn't anything um, that happened after that. But she had told her mother at the time, and her mother hadn't believed her. So life went on. This was a very conservative, Baptist, church-going, middle-class family. It lived in a lovely home. But, you know, this little incident happened. Life went on and on and on. You know, now everybody's grown up. She has got her own family. But every holiday, you know, they get together with grandma and grandpa. Uh, everything seems fine. But it wasn't fine, and she couldn't hide it any longer. And when we probed enough and she told us what had happened, she said, I thought I would go to my grave with this secret so again you can see how things don't get reported because they want to um they're so embarrassed and mortified
0: i want to tell you something something about this situation which is that um when when they had when they first got married the husband found out right away right away typically on a honeymoon you're going to find out things like that and the man what do you think the man's response was When he found out, picture-perfect family, conservative-perfect. What do you think the man's response was? He wanted to kill his father-in-law. And she made him promise what? Not only not to kill her father, (laughs) but she made him promise that he would never bring it up, that he would never tell anybody and so now you look decades later, now it makes sense that she's depressed. And Mary Lee made it sound like there was a one-off with that. It wasn't a one-off situation.
1: It, again, it was very, it's very complicated. Because that was originally what she told us. Well, that's the only thing I ever remember. But it was a very long and difficult um, road after that because we're never going to just listen to a story like that and say, well, that was a long time ago. You know, guess guess, you know, better get on. I hope you've forgiven your father. So Tim went and con- confronted the father for his action, confronted the mother for not believing the daughter. And, you know, they they actually both just denied it, which, again, I mean, it's classic. The reason, again, these things are so complicated is everybody always denies it. So the dad finally, so Tim keeps pushing and pushing, you know, and the dad finally goes, oh, well, you know, maybe i let things get a little out of hand. You know, it's like, oh, really? Is that what we call it? Excuse me. Um... You know, you penetrate your five-year-old daughter when you tuck her in a bed at night and call it getting a little out of control, you know. So Tim talked to the mother and said, you know, what in the world, you know, happened? What were you thinking? Why didn't you, you know... She goes, oh, I didn't know. And Tim goes, yeah, yeah, you did know. Because remember, she told you. She said, Daddy put his thing in me. And you didn't believe her. You didn't do anything. So, again... Um, you know, they, then the, everything just gets quiet, everyone's committed to secrets and not telling until 45, min, you know, years later, you've got a woman in serious depression. So that's why, you know, if, if you're a little bit new to the subject, you can be tempted to think, why can't you just get over it? That was so long ago. You need to forgive him and move on. But if you want to be helpful, you, you have to know how important it is for these uh, painful things to be brought out into the open and be dealt with. A quick fix is not a fix. And quick cures uh, never resolve the deep damage. Uh, So please don't ever, you know, be trite. And say, just forgive your molester. He's apologized. God forgave him. You need to move on. And this has, unfortunately, been the message in the church for years. When somebody finally does get up the nerve to report abuse, the most common response they get from family and friends, everybody is just like, what do you want to dredge that all back up for? Just let it go. Over and over. That's what abuse victims hear. So uh, simply telling an abused person to love her abuser is unhelpful. The work of restoration cannot begin until a problem is faced. Because I attend a lot of the births of the women of this church, I want to draw a parallel between the pain of labor and the relief and joy that comes when it's over with the pain of working through childhood abuse and the relief and healing that can come as a result of having having gone through the pain of working through it. It's very common toward the end of a labor where a woman will just say, I, I can't do this anymore, I'm too tired. And as, as the doula or um, labor coach, it's my job to say... Yes, you can do it. It is necessary for you to do it, uh, so that you can hold your baby in your arms. You know, I know it's painful, and that you're tired. But the longer you put it off, get, you know, getting it over with, um, resisting the process, the more tired you will be. So you actually have to push into the pain to get to the other side and experience the joy of seeing your baby's face. And it is similar um, to the painful process an abuse victim must go through to get to the other side to begin the healing process. Uh, she has to look the pain in the face. She needs to talk about it. She needs to process it. She often needs to be angry about her lost childhood, grieve the fact that she was betrayed by those who should have protected her, and even question why God allowed it to happen. Grieving is hard work, but it has to be done. The longer she denies it or, you know, it's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. That, was that. that wasn't that big of a deal. Um, that type of thing, though, the longer she denies it and tries to push it down, the um, more painful and emotionally exhausting it becomes to keep it down. And it needs to be brought to the surface and dealt with. Um, can't be resolved until it's faced. Another way to understand this process is to think in terms of cancer growing inside of your body. I mean, it can go for a long time undetected, but when there start to be symptoms, we can't just give vitamins and and hope for it to go away. Um, There is not an easy fix. There has to be x-rays, scopes, blood tests to determine the problem. And when the diagnosis is made, there needs to be chemotherapy, radiation, or proton therapy, which often make the person feel sicker than they felt beforehand. But again, it's part of the healing process. Um, Another misconception of those who have not experienced molestation is to think that a person could have and should have just walked away. You know, you were a teenager. What kept you from just walking away? Again, there are many reasons that victims don't walk away and don't tell anybody. But one of them is fear. Uh, They have often been threatened. They've often been told, for starters, no one's going to believe you. This might be an elder, you know, or somebody in a church, or a father. You know, no one's going to believe you. So they're, they're just uh, trained to be quiet, keep secrets. Uh, sometimes they're threatened with harm. Uh, I will kill your puppy if you t- ever tell anybody about this. Uh, or your parents will get divorced, and it will be your fault. There are a lot of ways that perpetrators are controlling and manipulative, and there's a lot of reasons why People don't tell. Victims have been programmed to silence and to be made, res- to feel responsible for what happened. So again, perpetrators know what they're doing. They, they talk about our little secret. They use the pronoun we to make the victim feel that she was responsible for what was happening. And the more this type of manipulation is going on, the less likely anybody, you know, a, a young child is going to feel like they have the ability to um, tell anybody Children are very vulnerable, and perpetrators are good at what they do. They take advantage of a vulnerability. Uh, Children don't have the ability to think rationally through these things. So in the same way that children often feel responsible for their parents' divorce, they feel responsible that they were molested. They feel shamed and dirty, and they don't... Want to tell anybody? Another reason they don't tell is they have been taught not to trust anybody. Sometimes it is because they have told someone and not been believed. Uh, Sometimes they've tried to tell someone by dropping hints and there's no response. Frequently they're told that what's going on is normal or they're totally isolated. Uh, And this is often the case when the father is the perpetrator and he literally moves his family, you know, away. They often move frequently so that the children can't develop enough relationships to trust anybody. Or they live so far out in the country and they're homeschooled and there's virtually nobody to tell. That's another way that the molesters keep... Everybody silent. The silence delays the healing process, so it is important for us to be good listeners, patient, available to women um, in the church to talk to us, or children uh, where it's currently happening. I don't mean that you need to necessarily be the counselor to help them through it, but you can be the one that is finally trusted enough to hear somebody's story so the healing process can begin. And what happens next, and who counsels the woman, and is the perpetrator uh, confronted? Uh, is he taken to the police? Is he dead or alive, for starters? Does it need to be reported to the police? These are all questions for the pastors and elders to deal with. So if you're a woman who's you know hearing a story, You're not holding the whole bag there. You're passing this information on to the pastors and elders. And again, you're not necessarily just through with the process. You know, here, I'm handing this over to you. You can still be part of the process, but it's not your responsibility to um, determine what's going to happen next. These are questions for the pastors and elders to answer. But you've helped by getting the process started. And that is what it means to be a Titus II woman, a mother in Israel, and a helpmate to your husband, Again, because most of your wives aren't here, I'm just going to give you my email address. If you want to jot it down, I will be happy to send these notes on. But it's Mary Lee Bailey at gmail.com. So m-a-r-y-l-e-e-b-a-y-l-y at gmail.com. And I'll be happy to. Thank you.